Did you hear about this UN Resolution 377? Have you heard about this? I wouldn't be surprised if you haven't. It kind of seemed like a massive story to me, but then when I did a Google search on it, I basically found no Western reporting on it. So I'm not going to draw conclusions here. I want you to draw the conclusions. I am simply here to present the information. Hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, exercising our free press, as we do here every week. And to Democracy Now!'s credit, and that is actually a Western source where I did discover it, and Democracy Now!, also known as the War and Peace Report, is basically what I would consider a, it's kind of like the PBS NewsHour, but with anchor Amy Goodman, who's been there for at least 20 years. It's kind of like the PBS NewsHour, but I'd argue with more urgency. It is a very excellent report if you're ever looking for it, and I'm not sure where it started, but it's a huge channel on YouTube now. And so, of course, when you have more than a thousand subscribers on YouTube, you can leave notes. And this is where I discovered the story. And let me just share it with you here quickly, because as we know, geopolitics is inextricably linked with what we do here. And when you start to think about this story, I want you to think about this story that I'm about to share with you in the context of the gold price. And again, I'm not drawing conclusions here. I am simply trying to present you with the information and let you do with it what you will. So here's the note I came across, Democracy Now! 22 hours ago. The UN General Assembly will hold a special session Tuesday after Egypt and Mauritania invoked Resolution 377 known as Uniting for Peace. The move came in response to the US on Friday, again vetoing a UN Security Council resolution calling for an urgent ceasefire in Gaza. Resolution 377 is designed to be deployed when the Security Council fails to, quote, exercise its primary responsibility for the maintenance of international peace and security, end quote. So that left me with a bunch of questions still. What is UN Resolution 377? What is this Uniting for Peace resolution that Democracy Now! has mentioned? So I did a Google News search, and I tell you, these are the news organizations that came up. Al Jazeera, The New Arab, Palestine Chronicle, Democracy Now!, Al Jazeera, The New Arab, Free Press Kashmir, The Star, which I believe is a UK tabloid, so another Western source there, but not exactly considered the most credible. I think they often report on the UFOs as well. The New Straight Times. So not exactly CNBC, New York Times, Washington Post, Bloomberg, is it? It feels like a bit of a science fiction story to me because here, I mean, I was on the homepage of CNBC. I mean, okay, UK political rebellion threatens PM Rishi Sunak. And then the second story, fashion brand Zara pulls ad accused of Gaza insensitivity, says it regrets, quote, misunderstanding. I mean, is that more important than this UN resolution? Now, let me just describe to you what this is so that you have a better idea. So I asked ChatGPT4, which I subscribe to, what the deal is with United Nations Resolution 377. It is known as the Uniting for Peace Resolution and was passed in 1950 during the Korean War. This resolution addresses the issue of a deadlock in the Security Council where permanent members have the power to veto resolutions. And apparently this was brought into force, as I was reading in Al Jazeera, when the Soviet Union was blocking uh, resolutions on the Korean War. Okay, so here are the key points. It can bypass the Security Council vote. Again, hopefully this is all a nothing burger and rightly ignored. 
by Western media and nothing ever happens here. And we can just say, this is an interesting, trivial pursuit that we engaged in here. But what if it's something more? And here I'm going to show you why it could be. So first, it bypasses the Security Council veto. If the Security Council, due to lack of unanimity among its permanent members, fails to exercise its primary responsibility for the maintenance of international peace and security, in a case where there appears to be a threat to the peace, breach of the peace, or active aggression, the General Assembly shall consider the matter immediately. Second, emergency special sessions. The resolution allows the General Assembly to call emergency special sessions to address such situations within 24 hours if the Security Council cannot act due to a veto by a permanent member. So that happened on Friday when the U.S. vetoed the resolution calling for peace in Israel and Gaza. And so the emergency special session that they can call, invoking 377, has been called for today, according to Democracy Now!, as well as other news sources such as Al Jazeera. And here's the kicker. Third, this is the third thing that UN Resolution 377 does, recommendations. During these sessions, the General Assembly can make recommendations to members for collective measures, including the use of armed force, when necessary, to maintain or restore international peace and security. So then we take a step back from my perspective, and again, feel free to leave a comment, and we're speculating here. This has Russian fingerprints all over it. First of all, Egypt has sponsored this resolution, as well as Mauritania, but Egypt, of course, is about to become a member of the BRICS. And, of course, runs the Suez Canal, a major choke point of Middle Eastern energy getting into Europe. Of course, as we noted on previous podcasts. So Egypt sponsors it. And again, just for a little bit of context here, let's not forget Sergei Lavrov's comment that he made in the press conference during the BRICS summit that was largely ignored to consider the BRICS simply a trade union of sorts is to underestimate its significance, to paraphrase. And of course, I mean, if you're doing trade, you're also going to start to empathize with people and sympathize with those people you're doing trade with. They become friends of yours, and that extends beyond trade. So even if Lavrov hadn't said that, that is one of the results that will happen here. So first of all, Egypt sponsors it. That's significant. Secondly, then we think of the Putin visits to Saudi Arabia and the UAE escorted by Russian fighter jets. And you think, why would Putin leave the country? Can't he call Mohammed bin Salman? And it got me thinking, again, if we were to speculate just a little bit here, why would Putin leave the country? I would say for two reasons. A, it will be noted. So there is a message that's being sent by Russia visiting Saudi Arabia and the UAE, United Arab Emirates. It is a message, what I suspect is to say that this Gaza issue is a serious matter to us and we're not bluffing, I would argue is the first signal. And then I thought there's maybe another aspect to it as well, which is why does Putin actually need to visit physically? And my sense is they probably feel there is no secure way of having a discussion that will not potentially be intercepted by the United States. So perhaps Putin feels that in order to have the discussion he wants to have with MBS, he needs to be physically there in person where they can more or less guarantee they will not be intercepted. There will be no electronics involved, shall we say, to super speculate here. All to say, I don't want to go too far on this, but interestingly, as we kind of put all this puzzle together, as gold hits support, silver hits support, 
It's just a compelling story, which I felt like I had to share here. So all very compelling as we continue to navigate this narrative with potential implications here for the gold price. I mean, that's the big speculation here. And so why do I say all this? Well, first of all, for us to understand the natural resource beat these days, we have to discuss geopolitics. And they're probably discussing oil as well, I might add. And to put a number on that, you know, oil is below $70 a barrel on WTI. Let me just look here. We are at $69.15, down 3% today on West Texas, and we're at $73.79 on Brent crude. And we know they want a higher oil price than that, so they're probably discussing energy as well. So that also relates to our discussion here. So very interesting developments here. Now, I don't want to go too long here. There is also another huge development here. Earth Labs has closed its acquisition of the Northern Miner, Canadian Mining Journal, and Mining.com. So the Northern Miner has a new owner. So hello and welcome to Earth Labs. And here we have a news file press release on Yahoo Finance. Earth Labs acquisition of major mining media outlets, the Northern Miner, Canadian Mining Journal, and Mining.com strengthen software as a service offerings aligning with CEO and DigiGeo data. So, of course, Earth Labs owns CEO.ca and DigiGeo data, so they're all going to be united together. I listened to a podcast where they discussed their plans, and it sounds like an interesting offering. And here, just finally... The expansion offers subscribers an enhanced access to mining news, community discussions, data analytics, and enriched event experiences. So could be a beautiful marriage here between these two groups. It looks like, you know, to use the cliche, it looks like there are going to be a lot of synergies here between the large community they have on CEO.ca and the journalism from Mining.com, Canadian Mining Journal, and of course, the Northern Miner. So very exciting on that front. And thank you for the comments as well. We had last week, I'm overweight in caliber mining, a great long-term hold. Thank you, user TT6EI. And also we have comments on the Simon Michaud episode regarding what Michaud is saying about geothermal energy here. I agree with them. I've worked a number of years in the geothermal industry, and my personal view is that it's relatively mature and proven field and magmatic and extensional tectonic settings. However, intracratonic and basement types are still very experimental despite a few decades of research, but that's what is needed for global adoption of geothermal energy. There are a number of reasons for this, but the largest bottleneck is drilling cost, as Michaud alluded here. At present, there are two realistic technological options, rotary drilling and hammer drilling. Rotary drilling is slow and expensive, but wellbore failure is controllable with careful geomechanical modeling. Hammer drilling is fast, comparatively, but it's very difficult, if not impossible, to control wellbore failure. So in short, geothermal energy is not an option for global electricity production with current drilling technology. Thermal heat pump production and energy storage are a bit of a different story but there are no silver bullets either. So thank you for the technical response here from Pelleher because, you know, I haven't heard anybody really been discussing too much geothermal in, frankly, a decade. Maybe 2014, 2015 is the last time geothermal seemed to be a thing, if I recall correctly. So very interesting to hear 
a very technical response here from Pelleher. And there's another one from Devin Newstead, 5513. On geothermal, can the generator be on a boring machine, then stepped up to high voltage and transmitted to the surface by cable? So not sure on that one. And another comment here, X-Large to Fat. The best army has hybrid diesel electric tanks. Abrams X. Okay, so very interesting. Thank you for the comments, and they are much appreciated. And I will continue to read them here, so do leave them. If you want to join the conversation here on the Northern Miner podcast, we have a wonderful episode here ahead of us with Michelle Ashby of Ashby Consulting Enterprises. She discusses the progress that is being made with women on boards, with specific reference to the mining sector where Michelle has been on, I think, eight boards, she was saying, in the mining sector. She gives wonderful advice on if you want to be on a board, how to do it, the nature of boards, what is a board, you know, how does the board relate to the CEO? How should they relate together? It is a wonderful discussion. She is a very good speaker, a very engaging speaker. I am very thrilled to have her here and look forward to having her back. So a fascinating show here and the news stories as well. You know, there's concerns that we won't have enough copper now in 2024. Very interesting. We'll get into all that. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. Find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts. And wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, the world's copper supply is suddenly looking scarce. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. A forecast surplus of copper going into 2024 has suddenly all but disappeared. The next couple of years were supposed to be a time of plenty for copper, thanks to a series of big new projects starting up around the world. The expectation across most of the industry was for a comfortable surplus before the market tightens again later this decade when surging demand for electric vehicles and renewable energy infrastructure is expected to collide with the lack of new mines. Instead, the mining industry has highlighted how vulnerable supply can be. Whether due to political and social opposition, the difficulty of developing new operations, or simply the day-to-day challenge of pulling rocks up from deep beneath the earth. And I think that's actually a very important point that really gets to the core of this issue. It's the day-to-day challenge of pulling rocks up from deep beneath the earth. And there's nothing certain in that business, is there? And a whole bunch of things can go wrong, as many people say. Mining is a difficult business, so if we're planning for optimal outcomes, you're probably going to be disappointed. Let's continue here. In the past two weeks, one of the world's biggest copper mines was ordered to close in the face of fierce public protests. While a slew of operational setbacks has forced one of the leading miners to slash its production forecasts. The sudden removal of around 600,000 tons of expected supply would move the market from a large expected surplus into balance or even a deficit, analysts say. And it's also a major warning for the future. Copper is an essential metal needed to decarbonize the global economy, which means mining companies will play a key role in facilitating the shift to green energy. And on that point, back to the appearance of Robert Friedland at the Canadian Mining Symposium in London, he was mentioning the importance of copper in war. And there is a lot of copper and nickel that is used in war, as well as aluminum, as well as rare earths, right? So again, if we're just factoring electric vehicles into the equation, how do they even factor in the war 
aspect of this. And, you know, there's no compromising when it comes to war. You simply need the metal and you will pay whatever you need to pay to get the weapons you need, one would think. So, you know, not even mentioned here. Continuing on, while the public reaction to the supply disruptions has so far been muted, and we are below $4 a pound copper still, 377 last I checked, amidst ongoing worries about China's property sector, any sign of demand recovery would hit a tight market. Last week, Panama's government formally ordered First Quantum Minerals to end all operations at its $10 billion copper mine in the country. The order followed weeks of protests and political wrangling that came to a head when the country's Supreme Court invalidated the law that underpinned its mining license. The giant Cobre Panama can produce about 400,000 tons of copper a year. They mentioned 600,000 tons being removed from supply, so Cobre Panama is a big deal. As the market was digesting the news that one of the biggest mines was closing, at least for now, Anglo-American delivered its own production bombshell on Friday with the announcements that it will slash production from its flagship copper business in South America. While problems at its platinum and iron ore mines in South Africa were well publicized, the copper cuts caught investors off guard, sending the company's shares plunging by 19%. Anglo has reduced its copper production target for next year by about 200,000 tons essentially removing the equivalent of a large copper mine from global supply. Production will fall even further in 2025. You know, back to this idea, pulling rocks out of the ground is not a simple business, is it? BMO Capital Markets, which was forecasting a large surplus of refined copper next year, now sees a small deficit instead. Goldman Sachs Group, which has been much more bullish on copper and already forecast a deficit of refined metal for 2024, now sees a shortfall ballooning to a more than half a million tons, to 500,000 tons. Jefferies also now expects a major deficit next year. And again, as we put all the puzzle pieces together here, remember how I was discussing the last week or two about this idea of gold being the general leading the charge of a metals bull market. I mean, this would seem to add to that thesis. Uh, we have a quote here from Goldman analyst Nicholas Snowden. Quote, the supply cuts reinforce our view that the copper market is entering a period of much clearer tightening. And you do wonder, with Jeff Curry leaving Goldman Sachs, if he was forced out with his super bullish commodities call that didn't quite pan out, is that the reason why? The expectation for a looser market in the near term has weighed on prices for much of this year, leaving copper drifting sideways. In early October, the International Copper Study Group said it expects a surplus... 467,000 tons next year, its largest forecast for a glut since 2014. Live copper inventories on the London Metal Exchange has surged since mid-year to a two-year high, but have now retreated for three straight weeks. So we will start checking in on that in the coming weeks here. And here's a quote from Jefferies. Quote, disruptions have significantly increased and a market deficit is now increasingly likely. We could be at the foothills of the next copper cycle. So as I like to say here, Again, nat gas at $2.30 last I checked. All the risk in the commodities markets, at least in the metals, the risk seems to be on the upside, doesn't it? So continuing on, Ivanhoe Mines quadruples exploration spend in search of more DRC copper. This is Bruno Venditti at the Northern Miner. Ivanhoe Mines has increased its exploration budget to $90 million for 2024, quadrupling the previous amount. 
The primary focus of exploration activities will be the Western Foreland Project in the Democratic Republic of Congo, or DRC, which is adjacent to Ivanhoe's successful Kamoa Kakula copper operation. And we have a quote from Ivanhoe founder and co-chair Robert Friedland, who said, quote, Firstly, we will continue to expand the Kitako copper discovery with additional drill rigs, thereby increasing our knowledge of its substantial exploration opportunities. Second, we will advance our understanding of Mokoko and Kiala deposits and optimize our studies for near-term copper mine production on our majority-owned licenses. Finally, we'll continue to evaluate high-priority targets across the forelands based on our fast-evolving proprietary database and geologic models for additional Tier 1 high-grade copper discoveries." End quote. And finally, Ivanhoe announced last week the Kitako discovery, saying it's similar to the massive ore body it is mining at Kamoa Kakula. So wild to think that stock was at 30 cents in 2016. I remember that. Wild. I think last I checked it was above $12. It's probably even higher now. Continuing on, gold price has much more upside than downside risk, says Barrick's CEO. This is a staff writer at Mining.com. Reporting on an interview that Barrick's CEO Mark Brissot gave with the Financial Post, and here it says, Barrick Gold Chief Executive Mark Brissot said the market is underestimating the damages Western Central Bank tightening cycles have done to their respective economies. In the United States, for example, Brissot said there is simply no fiscal discipline. Quote, people have gotten used to free money. It's going to be hard to tighten things up. I am a great believer in the U.S. economy, but wow, I have seen some very undisciplined approaches from both the Republicans and the Democrats on how they manage their fiscal policy, end quote, Brissot told the FP. And so Brissot goes into a bit of a classic gold bug narrative here. Quote, when you print money, it's like printing shares in a company. If you print shares in a company and you don't add more value, then the value of the shares goes down. And so when you print piles of fresh money and your economy doesn't grow, the value of that money becomes risky. Continuing on, quote, you buy it to preserve your wealth because you don't trust the economy. And that's also why there's signs of crypto getting some revival, although I don't believe in that. But if you look at 2023, gold has outperformed all the other asset classes, end quote. And finally, uh, another quote here as we wrap up on this story, quote, to add to that, the gold mining industry hasn't replaced the gold we have mined. We have used the higher gold prices to unlock lower grade reserves, but in the past two and a half years, with the flat rate and then inflation, we have seen that margin in the mining industry shrink, and that's why we need to find more gold. Fascinating insight from Mark Brissot there, CEO of Barrick, and another interesting story, this time from Reuters via mining.com. Young Chinese spurn traditional investments in favor of gold. Gold buyers in China are getting younger as a property market downturn, weakening stocks and currency, and low bank deposit interest rates have left them dwindling options to save for rainy days in a sputtering economy. The trend underscores heightening uncertainty about growth prospects in the world's second largest economy, which has not recovered from COVID-19 lockdowns as fast as consumers and job hunters had expected. And we have a quote from Linda Liu, 26, who works for a pharmaceuticals company in Beijing and worries about job stability. Quote, the employment market has not been very good. Buying gold makes me feel better. I want gold jewelry instead of diamonds for my wedding. Don't tell that to the diamond market, which is hoping they have seen a bottom there and is definitely struggling. And finally, on this story, China is the world's top buyer of physical gold. And analysts say this year it has become an increasingly important driver behind a rally in global spot gold prices, which hit all-time highs on Monday. 
Analysts expect Chinese demand for the safe haven metal to remain high as economic growth grinds lower in coming years and foreign investment outflows weigh on the yuan, while the property market is still looking for a bottom. And finally, Jack Roizen, Managing Director of Consulting at Digital Luxury Group in Shanghai, said, quote, Incomes are not really appreciating, real estate is not really appreciating, the stock market is not really appreciating. Gold is a little bit of a unicorn in this environment, end quote. And it harkens back to the interview I did with Cam Curry last week on how the gold price itself will help create the narrative that is needed in the gold market to rise further. And here we're starting to see inklings of that in this quote from the managing director of consulting at Digital Luxury Group in Shanghai. And just a few headlines here. China's CMOC says geopolitics helped drive Australia sale. Bloomberg News via mining.com. Just a couple of lines here. Chinese copper and cobalt miner CMOC Group, which sold a controlling stake in its North Park mines in Australia earlier this week, said a changing geopolitical situation was one of the reasons for the divestment. A media representative for the company, confirming comments made by a CMOC official to local media on the sale, said those shifts and a challenging outlook meant it was unlikely to expand its operations in Australia, which ultimately limited future synergies. And we have an analyst from Bloomberg Intelligence, Grant Spohr, who said, quote, Western governments have woken up to the risks that their supply chains of critical minerals could be cut off or severely squeezed if China dominates supply. That means a tougher market for further acquisitions, end quote. Very interesting. And finally, Global Mining Stars do at third annual Saudi Green Metals Conference. And this is Colin McClelland at the Northern Miner. Saudi Arabia seeks to funnel more petrodollars to battery metal projects with an all-star lineup at its third annual Future Minerals Forum in January. Leaders of the world's largest mining companies are due to attend the January 9th to 11th conference in Riyadh, the capital. Dominic Barton of Rio Tinto, Mark Brisso of Barrick Gold, Robert Friedland of Ivanhoe Electric, and Eduardo Bartolomeo of Valet and Stuart Chambers of Anglo-American. So some major heavy hitters appearing in Saudi Arabia. And here's a quote from Khalid Al-Mudafer, Vice Minister for Mining Affairs, who said, One is to build cooperation with the various international companies in the world to enhance the methods of discovery and production of new minerals and manufacturing. Another is the ministerial meetings to enhance collaboration between ministers of the world. So very interesting developments in Riyadh. And finally, U.S. House approves Russian uranium import ban. This is Bloomberg News. So right after our headline here last week that we were commenting on at COP28 with nations vowing to triple their nuclear energy usage by 2050, the U.S. House voted Monday to approve legislation that would bar the importation of enriched Russian uranium sending the measure to the Senate where it has support but limited time for passage this year. The Prohibiting Russian Uranium Imports Act, which was approved by voice vote, would bar uranium imports 90 days after enactment while allowing a temporary waiver until January 2028. Those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, let's take a quick look at the bond market for context here. And the U.S. 10-year bond is yielding 4.224%. That is 0.06% higher 
than last week. The UK gilt is down 0.05% at 3.971%. So below 4% on the UK 10-year and the Italy 10-year right at 4.01%. And that is 0.06% higher than last week. So not much movement in the bond market. Italy and US edge a little higher. While the UK edges a little lower, turning to precious metals, gold is trading at $1,996.70 per ounce. That is $40 lower than last week and back below $2,000. Silver is trading at $23.04 per ounce. That is $1.47 lower than last week. Platinum is trading at $912.22 per ounce. That is $4 lower than last week. And palladium is also lower at $959.54 per ounce. That is $14 lower than last week. Turning to industrial metals, copper is trading at $3.78 per pound. That is $0.04 lower than last week. Iron ore is trading at $135.16 per metric ton. That is $5 higher than last week. Aluminum is $0.03 lower at $0.96 per pound. Lead is five cents lower at 90 cents per pound. Nickel is also lower at $7.53 per pound. That is 11 cents lower than last week. Tin is higher at $11.14 per pound. That is 37 cents higher than last week. Cobalt is lower at $14.50 per pound. That is 66 cents lower than last week. Lithium is at $13.73 per kilogram. That is $2 lower than last week, and uranium continues to edge higher at $81.45 per pound. That is $0.45 cents higher than last week, and zinc edges a little lower at $1.09 per pound. That is $0.02 cents lower than last week. It appears precious metals are lower. Industrial metals are generally lower, showing a little bit of recession concern, if I had to interpret with individual markets like iron ore, tin, and uranium edging higher, likely due to fundamentals to those markets. So interesting moves there. Again, nickel at $7.53 per pound, and lithium at $13 is a definite standout. And those are your metal prices. Coming up, I'm very pleased to welcome Michelle Ashby, founder and CEO of Ashby Consulting Enterprises for the first time to the Northern Miner podcast. She gives a extended, in-depth analysis and view on the nature of boards in the mining industry, particularly in regards to women's participation on boards. It is a fascinating discussion. If you are interested in becoming a part of boards, Michelle gives a user's guide on how you might begin to achieve that. I hope you enjoy this fascinating interview, and I will see you on the other side. Joining us today, I'm very pleased to welcome for the first time to the Northern Miner podcast, Michelle Ashby. CEO and founder of Ashby Consulting Enterprises, which helps put women on boards. Michelle, welcome to the show. Hi, Adrian. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here and to meet your audience. Well, I'm 
quite thrilled, actually, to have you here. Uh, I think it's kind of an interesting topic, women on boards. It gets discussed a fair amount. But frankly, I haven't had too many experts on who actually know the business as their specialty. So for those that aren't familiar with Ashby Consulting Enterprises, tell us what are you up to and tell us a little bit about your background. Well, as far as Ashby Consulting Enterprises, I put women on corporate boards. That's like the short of that. And we can get into that more. And my background really comes from this particular sector that you're addressing in your podcast. My background's in finance and mining, so I was a mining analyst early in my career, and then I actually started and ran the Denver Gold Group, which many people in the mining industry are familiar with, for 18 years and built that into an institution and then left there in 2005, which is when I was invited to my first board of directors with Rob McEwen. And subsequently, I had another business and did more investment conferences for the mining sector globally in Africa, the Middle East, and Asia, working with the large European and United Kingdom banks, which was a very successful business. It's always good to bring capital to the mining industry. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, they sure need it we sometimes. Are, we really are hungry for that. <laughs> um, but I've sat on a number of mining boards subsequently. And in 2016, I was looking to get on a couple extra boards. My mentors have all been men in the mining sector, and I watched my male counterparts climb the corporate ladder, get on three or four boards, and then retire out. And they were, you know, doing fine, right? They're working part-time on these boards. They've got their stock options, and they get to go golf and ski and travel with their families. And that was the lifestyle I was looking to go to because that's how I was mentored. But at that time, there was a lot of noise about there aren't enough women on boards. And even though I had been the only woman in the room for most of my 30-year career in mining and finance, I really didn't get it. You know, I was like, why not? And I actually didn't have a lot of female colleagues because you know, this is no secret that women tend to stab each other in the back, very competitive, work from a place of scarcity, or they have in the past. And so, you know, it's a different world when you're working with men. The model is do your job really, really well and stand out. You get recognized and you get moved up. That's the way that I was treated. So I started interviewing women because I wanted to know why. Like, why aren't you on a board why do you think there aren't as many women on boards as there could be? And tell me about your background. And so I talked to about 200 women over 18 months. And that's how I learned that there were what I felt were really qualified women in lots of industries, not just mining. And yet they didn't know how to get on boards and they didn't know what it was like in the boardroom. They had not been exposed to that part of it. So that kind of started my journey on exploration because I'm an analyst I was like okay so what's out there for women only you know and there was very little in the United States we had Kellogg and Harvard programs but you had to be the CEO of a company that was pretty sizable even to apply hmm. which left out 99% of us I know in Canada they have the ICD program for men and women together in the US we didn't have a specific board training program until later on with NACD. But that was the impetus for me to, to start a curriculum, build a curriculum specifically for women 
who wanted to be in those leadership roles. Like this is not for everybody, right? And at the same time, I saw this incredible value that could be brought to the table and we were missing out, right? Well, that's totally fascinating what you're saying. And I really like how you approached the issue, which is interviewing 200 women. It's a very real world, it's a very pragmatic way of trying to figure something out. It wasn't going to a textbook. It wasn't going to some theoretical thing. It was very practical. So tell me then, you know, again, you have background in mining. So and this is a mining show. So maybe we'll kind of zero in a little bit, but we don't need to zero in too much. So tell me. As far as you understand now, then, what is the state of women on boards in, say, the mining industry? And what is the outlook as well? Yeah, well, I know that it's gotten way better since 2016. So we've seen this great improvement, you might say, or invitation, let's say it that way, of boards who are inviting women and more diversity into their boards. And this could be coming because of the education of understanding that there's value that can be brought to the table that wasn't there before. Also, it's from pressure from investors. So you have, you know, Glass Lewis and ISS who are saying, wait a second, you need more diversity on your boards. And so there's a pressure there. Some of the exchanges have even put in place comply or explain. So there's been a light shown on the fact that this has been an exclusive club up until very recently. And so the percentages, I think, in the mining sector are still low. I'm going to guess it's around 18%. I know globally, we're at 20% women on boards, for, and that's for all the reporting boards. So it's not private. Private companies are much lower. So we think private industry is about 11% women on boards. That is fascinating. I mean, when I hear you say 20%, to be honest, I didn't expect it to be that high. It sounds like there is some progress being made here, as you were yes. saying. Yes. Uh, so so grounds for optimism, we might say. So then, you know, we have a lot of people that listen to this podcast, both young and old. In a sense, like maybe there are people that want to get on boards that are listening to this show right now. So I guess, what would you say to them, like in, in a sense, uh, from all you've studied and, you know, you have a consultancy here, how do women get on boards? So I have a program that gets women certified, right? And so I'll just give you some statistics. So I've had 170-ish women go through that, that program and become certified from nine countries. And primarily they're from Canada and the United States. So far, they filled 103 corporate boards, eight of them have become CEOs, and eight new companies have been formed. Why do we have such a high success ratio? Is because of preparedness. First of all, you need to be really good at what you do. Second of all, you have to have a passion for leadership and the courage. What I say is courageousness, enough courageousness to step up into these big roles to make decisions. It isn't easy, like you're representing all the stakeholders. It's not just about what you think or what your passion is. I want to clean, you know, climate change or whatever. It's really about what's what's best for all of the parties that are involved. And so it's a really complex kind of thing. And you need to understand that before you jump into it. Right. So um, preparedness is number one and competency. Having a competency around what you're getting into is really important. So working with someone like myself or another mentor, 
who's already been there and can help you with those nuances is super important as well. Because you want to be the most effective. And the thing about training women separately from men is that I go into gender dynamics in the boardroom because we, meaning women, don't always understand what we're telegraphing when we're in these kinds of situations because it's a unique culture. Let's call it, you know, it could be called the locker room, good old boy club, you know, collegiality. There is a culture there that we are stepping into and both parties, male and female, are having to adjust to that. So we are watching each other and like, how's that person reacting to me? Am I able to bring up my point? Am I being talked over? You know, there are many of these kind of nuances that we discuss because what I want is to have everyone be as effective as possible because you're there for a reason. This is so interesting. Like uh, maybe another way of kind of phrasing it or parsing it out is, you can have your competency, say, if it's mining in, let's just say for the sake of argument, geology. But from what I gather from what you're saying, there is an art and a competency to actually being a board person as well. Right. Like it's like, you know, there is a culture, as you say. So in order to be an effective board member and to be listened to. Right. Uh, you kind of got to know how it works. You is do. That, and this is isn't something you can Google. You know, you're not going right. to be able to watch a, a board meeting on YouTube because of the securities laws. You It's insider information. These are not recorded. OK, it's like a secret kind of thing. So you have to learn it either on, you know, like I did just by going in and doing it or from someone like me. But it's a lot different market right now, a lot different world in 2023 than it was in 2005 when I started out. And so I think that's why it's really important to know exactly what you're doing. That's interesting. And I, I remember talking to a friend in the industry, a woman who was invited to a board. She actually, it was kind of funny. She actually told me she didn't do it because she felt like she was being invited because she was a woman and a minority. And she felt like, you know, maybe that wasn't the right reason to do it, interestingly. So, I would, so yeah, this is a yeah, good go point because I have women come to me and go, I'm not going to go if I'm going to be the token woman. And I said, you know what? I'll take token womanism every single day. And the reason is because it gets you in the room. Now do something. Right. Like, I basically told I told her the same thing. I was like, just do it anyway. Like, who yeah, cares? You do right? it anyway. Learn it's what the experience. Heck. Yeah. yeah, like get over the label or the whatever. This is an incredible opportunity for you to learn and to help someone else come into the board. The other thing I wanted to bring up, because you kind of mentioned it, I always recognize the boards I've been on. And I, like I said, I've typically been the only woman in the room. Diversity is so important. Diversity of background. I want a mining person who's been in operations. I want a geologist who's been on the ground. I want an accountant on that board. I want somebody with, you know, people skills and backgrounds, maybe even somebody in real estate. It can be a really diverse group. You don't want all geologists. You don't want all investors. You want to have that diversity of background, male or female. Absolutely important to have those in order to have a really well-rounded group that are making decisions at the very top of the company. It's imperative. Well, this brings like a very kind of core question to our conversation, what you're bringing up, because it makes me wonder, like, and probably a lot of people aren't 
clear and maybe I'm not even clear. I mean, I feel like I have a certain idea, like what is the role of a board? So the role of a board in a publicly traded company is oversight and strategy. So we're responsible for everything from the top down. So we're responsible for the succession of the CEO. And, you know, and that's a really important piece because if you don't have the right CEO and you don't have the right communication between the board and the CEO, you're probably not going to have a very successful business. So this is a really key thing. But we're also in charge of looking at what's this company going to be like in three years or five years? What are our main goals? Working not only at the board level, but with our executive team and even bringing in management to have that interaction on the strategy. So we're all going in the same direction, right? So that's where the board of directors is important. Now, you will also hear, you know, we have fiduciary duty, which means we're responsible for all the shareholders. So we're sitting at that table, and I mentioned that earlier, looking out for the shareholders' interest. So we have to take that into consideration. And I would add that we're also responsible for all the stakeholders. We are responsible for the livelihood of our executives, of our management team, of our employees, of our communities where we're doing our mining and all the people we're employing there, our environments that we're working in, our customers in the end. And I think there's also a responsibility to the industry to represent as mining companies who are responsibly doing our job in our extractions. Okay, and just very briefly, if possible, like where does the job of the kind of the CEO and the team kind of stop and the board begin? Like if the CEO wants to go in a certain direction, does he or she have to get the board to approve it? It depends on what you're saying. So if they're going to make a major change, they would bring that to the board. That would be something that would be a conversation with the board of directors. And if it entails, like with certain companies, there are also thresholds that are financial. So if it's a decision that's over a $25 million decision, it has to be approved by the board, right? But the, you want the board to be aware of any major changes that are going to be happening because, again, we have fiduciary responsibility. So if we have a CEO who's running Maverick all over the place, being a cowboy or cowgirl, and doing whatever the heck they want to with budgets and people and you know properties and all that kind of stuff that's not good fiduciary duty we are not taking care of business the way we need to be and just quickly that does happen i assume <gasps> yeah <laughs> yes okay yeah, just out of curiosity i'm not an expert on boards here so I, I have some simple questions sometimes okay so let's say you're ambitious and you get the opportunity which is probably half the battle to get on a board let's say you're you're a woman you get on a board so i mean do you have any tips uh, obviously you're a consultant for this so i don't want you to spill all the beans but what should women do once they're on a board there's lots of beans in there so i can share some and not lose all that yeah Give sure. it all away. But you By know what? I think, you know, the, again, the thing is, if you're prepared and you've talked to people, it's a really, you're good to go. But, you know, I can tell you that both men and women that I've seen join boards as new members, they usually are very quiet the first two meetings. And the reason is that they're trying to, you know, listen, you know, get the sense of what's going on, but be prepared to speak because, you know, the chair of the board will introduce you to the board and they may ask you to introduce yourself. And at the end of the meeting, they may ask you for your observations of the meeting that you just participated in. So, if, for instance, in my case, I just joined a, a board last year. You know, that first meeting, I was taking notes. I was making, you know, following along. And sure enough, 
at the end of the meeting, they asked me what I thought. And I was able to go back and say, you know, when you brought up this point, I, you know, recognized that, 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 and I was able to really go through it. And the response was, wow, we've been waiting for you to show up, you know? So, yeah. So you, you want to be astute and um, participate and ask good questions. So what the other thing is, it's, you know, you're new to this, the river's been running, you're stepping into it where it had, you know, it has something coming, but it has some things that are down downstream and you don't know all that history. And so it's not about sitting there and judging and saying, well, well, didn't you try this? And, you know, it's really about asking those more meaningful questions, you know, in regards to, I'm sure you've thought of this, or is this something that has been tried in the past? And can you share with me what happened there and what, how did that work out? But prior to your board meeting, you also want to have some one-on-ones, first of all, with the chair and any committees that you're going to be joining, because usually they'll ask you to join a certain either one or two committees before. So you could talk to the chair of those committees in advance and become more familiarized. The more you have conversations with other directors and the CEO, the more familiar you'll be with things when you get in that first meeting. Okay, excellent. So you have been on mining boards, correct? I have. I'm on, I think, my eighth now. Okay, so you've seen a few. This is great. So you have a certain expertise. So overall, like, is it possible to generalize and say what kind of changes you would like to see? Or another way of framing this question is like, what is going right with, you know, if you were to generalize on boards and what is maybe not going so well on boards? Is, is, that, uh, is that a question that's answerable from your perspective? I think it is. I mean, you know, I've been fortunate, I think, to be on boards that are very engaged, you know, so everyone is very interested in the outcome for the company. And uh, here's one thing I highly recommend, have a strategic meeting every year. Every board needs to do that with their directors. And that's something that a practice that happens sometimes and doesn't happen other times. That is one of the best practices that you can have because that's a place where you're going to stop once a year and really review everything that's happened and also you're going to be be able to integrate what's coming down the pike and for instance that would be like ESG we've got to integrate ESG I know people don't like it but the regulators are coming after us and we have to have this together so that strategic meeting gives us an opportunity to integrate that The other one is AI. Like how many mining companies are really talking about AI other than the application on the mine site? And we need to talk about AI as far as, you know, our cybersecurity and are our employees using it? How are they using it? Is it affecting the quality of any information that we're dispensing to the marketplace? There's so many questions around that. So that's where I feel like we can improve. Excellent. And as we wrap up here, Michelle, this has been totally fascinating. I mean, is there something we haven't discussed that you think is information we should get out to the audience that they would find interesting and just helpful and just educational, really, on on the nature of boards, uh, say, within the mining industry? I think what I would like to say is that I've been very surprised over the years since I started doing this in 2017, 2016-17, to now how many women I've met who are really, they love the mining industry. They're, you know, they're in every aspect of the industry. They may not have the title because they're women of, you know, the C-suite 
and yet many times they've done a lot of the activities that would qualify them for that. And so I want to like express that there are a lot of qualified women out there and I've seen improvement in boards and in outcomes of companies when they've had added more diversity. So my message is please, I'm encouraging more of the diversity. And like I said, my mentors were men and are men and friends of mine. And I love the mining sector and I can speak the speak and go into those meetings and do what I love, which is let's do some problem solving together. And that's the thing I always felt neutral. I never felt like there was any difference. We were all there for the same reason to solve this issue that we had on the table at that moment. And that's what I want other people to feel, men and women. Okay, excellent. And one final question here that I want to sneak in here. What kind of practical advice do you have, say, for women who are moving up and maybe men as well, but this is focused on women. Like, What advice do you have for people that say, let's say they have that ambition, they feel like they can do it or maybe might be able to do it. Do you have any practical advice as to how they would actually make that leap? And, you know, because people, it, it probably feels like a bridge too far oftentimes for a lot of people. Like how, how yeah. like I asked you this earlier, but what, what sort of practical advice do you have for people? You know, I think the thing that has worked the best for me is curiosity. So I've always been curious and interested in how do you do what you do? And so make that effort, whether you're a man or woman, to understand someone's business and spend time. Is it okay if I, you know, come to your meeting? Is it okay if I go on a mind tour? Is it okay if I spend some time with you and just understand more about what your challenges are and why they're like that? That has been one of the best things for me in developing a network of really, I think, solid connections. And we get on boards because of who we know. We get on boards because of the network. It's a trust, you know, if people trust you and they like you and they believe that you've got that ability, you know, to keep it in the inner sanctum, then you've got a pretty good chance of having your name put into the hat. But you've got to get, you've got to be interested. And so it's not like living in your bubble and getting one more degree. Oh, I could need another MBA or all that kind of stuff. Spend all that time having coffees, lunches and dinners with as many people in the industry and just ask them who they are, what they do, what they love, where they've been. I mean, mining people are some of the most interesting people in the world. They've been everywhere and they have amazing stories. I could sit at those dinners for hours and listen to people talk about you know, building the mines for De Beers in Africa or whatever it is. I mean, these are fascinating people. So I think that's like my number one thing that I would recommend. Right. It's like you got to earn that trust. And in order to earn the trust, you really got to get to know people in a real way. Uh, otherwise, you're never going to get the kind of trust you're going to need to get that invite to appear on a board. Right. So I think people look at, you know, how can I do a shortcut? And if you're an introvert taking a class and, you know, seems like the like the thing to do, whereas actually putting yourself out there and sitting down and talking to all these people who start out as strangers, that might take two or three years to develop or even longer. Seems like, eh, you know, maybe not so much, but I'm telling you, that's going to be the investment that's really going to pay off. Excellent. Michelle Ashby, CEO and founder of Ashby Consulting Enterprise. Thank you for joining us on the Northern Miner podcast.
Thank you for having me. This has been a really great conversation. Indeed. I hope we can catch up on this in a few months and just hear an update. If you have any, uh, do let us know. I will. Thank you once again to Michelle Ashby, founder and CEO of Ashby Consulting Enterprises, for joining us and sharing her insights on the composition of boards in the mining industry and the strategies that could be employed to get on those boards. Just fascinating. Looking forward to hearing more updates on that. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us once again this week. We have George McLeod coming up next week on geopolitics. So a big picture view of natural resources in our greater world which will be fascinating, I'm sure. If you want to help out the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.